started here, sorry, I'm running a couple minutes late. We're going to pick back up in Luke's Gospel at chapter 15, which in some respects is the heart of the parables. Having just covered our last meeting, whatever that was, it is like a long time ago, uh, 14, we now kind of go seamlessly into 15, but we do have a little bit of a change of venue, a little bit of break in the action, so that chapter 15 really does form a unit, and while I'm often critical of where you put chapters, here's a good place to put a chapter break. Let's open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, enlighten our hearts and minds to the teaching of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, that we might believe that which he teaches and show it forth bearing much fruit, as indeed sons of the Father reconciled to you by the Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, greetings to you guys online. I don't know if you can hear me or see me. The camera isn't directed at me, so I have no idea. But we'll get going anyway. Yeah, you guys are probably going <laughs> Better scenery than usual, man. Okay, so at 15, um, what I want to do, this is the parables of the, the, the so-called lost parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost boy. Those would be good ways of thinking about it. And what I want to introduce to you, it's going to seem a little, it is a little artificial, but I think it's helpful. If we look at this, uh, these parables with three different focal planes in mind, you're going to, I think, I think this would be helpful. It would be instructed for how to do the, uh, how to do all the parables, I think, but these ones in particular. Anything I can do to... Oh, okay. Thanks. Okay, greetings to you guys online. Maybe you couldn't hear me before. I don't know. But uh, we had a prayer, and we're about to jump into the text, so you didn't miss anything. So at 15, uh, chapter 15, and I was just telling the guys... Um, very frequently, and here especially, it's helpful to have uh, three different focal planes, places or levels at which you can focus when looking at the parables, and you'll be able to see different things, you'll be able to see where different controversies and, and different interpretations come in, okay? So the first focal plane is going to simply be this. Who is Jesus talking to, and why is he saying what he's saying? What is just the base level rhetoric? Okay, and that's going to help us see things in a fresh way, in kind of an innocent and simplistic way, if you will. So that's the first, is just what is the purpose of what Jesus is saying in its initial context? Okay, the second focal plane is with what terms, with what themes does Jesus freight his words? So that upon second reading, or upon multiple meditations, you start to see something more. It was always there, but it wasn't that primary exchange. So think about, think about this with the, remember the Good Samaritan? The primary focal plane is, this guy's like, hey, who's my neighbor? And Jesus ends up telling the Good Samaritan, and then, hey, you go and do likewise. In other words, Jesus' teaching there is, Mercy, not sacrifice. 
mercy to those who deserve it not. But the way he freights and loads his words and that imagery is upon second reading, upon later reflection and meditation, you come to see him as the good Samaritan. But that's not immediately evident in anything he says. He doesn't say, I am the good Samaritan. He doesn't say, hey, you're the guy beaten up on the side of the road, and I'm the good Samaritan who saves you, so then you should be a good Samaritan likewise, receive my mercy, and then be a good Samaritan unto others. That's a secondary focal plane. And that's 100% valid, and it's on account of the way our Lord freights his words and freights the picture But you can make a distinction there from the immediate argument being made in context to to the person or persons to whom he's speaking, and then the secondary reflection. Does that make sense? I hope that's not too headsy, but it's going to be especially helpful with these parables because I'm going to point out to you some things that, you know, it's not going to be anything new. These are very well-worn. But the freshness of these parables comes in like what was staring us right in the face. And we just, we're on the second or third focal plane all the time. And we're not seeing, for example, the first focal plane, what Jesus actually means rhetorically to the people he's speaking to. Okay, so then then you've got the first focal plane again, who he's speaking to and the rhetoric he's using. The second is the language and imagery that our Lord is choosing. He's freighting his words so that we get more out of it down the road. Okay. And the third is Luke or whoever else the biblical writer is. When he goes to present this story, he is freighting it even more. He is giving a literary context and enriching it all the more. Okay, so that those are the those are the three levels, and these three levels, by the way, you can do with almost all the gospels. What is Jesus initially saying? Okay, why is he saying it that way? And what do we? What else do we immediately grasp that goes beyond the mere rhetoric of the occasion? And then the third question is the third focal plane, and that's why does this particular author? whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, couch it and frame it and tell it in this way. Those three things can give you um, wonderful depth in any biblical story, but can also help you clarify in terms of your own exegesis, what you're taking out of the text, um, why you might take it one way and somebody else might take it another, at least on these secondary and third tertiary level uh, levels of analysis. Okay, I hope that's not too headsy. I intend to make this simple and straightforward as we go through, but it is helpful to have that frame in mind. Okay, so just at 15.1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Okay, so we have the first and the third level already emerging. The first level is we've got tax collectors and sinners who are attracted to Jesus for whatever reason and want to hear him. The third level is what is Luke drawing our attention to? He's already drawing our attention to what Jesus, that refrain of Jesus, for example, let the one who has ears to hear, hear. 
So who is it that has ears to hear? Surprisingly, shockingly, it's this twofold class of the tax collectors and sinners. Now, look what else he's done in terms of narrative structure. In verse 2, and the Pharisees and scribes. So you've got these, you've got these two twofold classes. You've got the tax collectors and sinners. That's one of the twofold classes. And this is opposed to the Pharisees and the scribes. So what I'm just trying to point out to you is that Luke is doing this intentionally. He could have said the scribes and the Pharisees and the nomokoi, the experts in the law, uh, but he doesn't. Well, maybe the, yeah, is that, no, it's grammatase probably scribes. So he's, he's setting this up and framing it and he's got these twos already in place. It's just worth noting. And he's got these two groups. So when we get to the two sons, we're already going to understand that Luke is playing with some really complex biblical themes. So when we get to the two sons, the prodigal son, as you know him and the firstborn son, were already uh, primed by Luke to reflect more deeply on these realities. So if you just think of the sons, immediately what's going to come into your mind is like Cain and Abel. The firstborn, literally, and this is Luther's take because it's literally the Hebrew, Eve says, I have received a man, the Lord. She thinks that the promise that she heard spoken to the serpent, that the offspring of the woman will come and is now in her first offspring, Cain. No wonder he thinks he's God's gift. He thinks he is God. And he thinks that then when it's time to slay his brother, that's perfectly within his ability. He's the firstborn, but it's the secondborn who surprisingly is blessed. Indeed, Abel, the name itself means of no account, nothing, afterthought don't even matter bro because Cain's the lord so you're just along for the ride like the rest of us right off the bat you've got this this framing then that think about then when abraham comes along i mean you do have this echo that's just less convincing in noah and his sons but when abraham comes along you have who ishmael the technical firstborn and isaac the secondborn of abraham at least and the blessed one. Okay, then you've got what? After that, you've got Jacob and Esau. Esau, the firstborn, and Jacob, the secondborn, but Jacob receives the blessing. Down the line, you've got Perez and Zerah, and you've got some others. Uh, and then ultimately, all of this is going to tie in, and I'll try to point this out when we get to this part in Luke's account, In the backdrop for Luke, you've got two sons of God, the firstborn son of God and the secondborn son of God. Okay, who's the firstborn son of God? Do you know? Adam, bingo. And the secondborn son of God, the son of God of blessing is Christ. So if you go back to the, well, let's just spill the beans here real quick. So if you go back to, um, if you go back to chapter four, what, where is it in Luke? Is it three? Yeah, it's three. And you see the genealogy in Luke, which is constructed differently in Luke than it is in Matthew because they have different purposes. That's that third focal plane I'm talking about. There's one, line, there's one lineage of Jesus Christ. There's one genealogy. Why on earth 
does Matthew communicate it the way he communicates it and Luke communicate it in such a different way? And they have different intentions. They want you to be thinking about different things. Matthew's is completely stylized and is intended that you see the line of Jesus as flowing from Abraham, but even more importantly for Matthew's purposes, through David. Because he wants to show that Christ is the true king and Herod is the imposter king. Luke wants to do this. Luke traces it not merely back to David and back to Abraham, but if you look at chapter 3, um, verse 38, the very end of chapter 3, he has traced it all the way back to Enos, the son of Seth, who is the thirdborn of Adam and Eve. So Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Luke's tapped into these two sons. Jesus himself taps into this. So this takes us back to kind of the, that first focal plane. Remember the parable we covered where Jesus says, um, one son, his father says, you go into the vineyard and work. And the son says, I will not go. But later on, he goes. And the other son says, I'll go right away. But then he doesn't go. You got these two sons. Okay. So weaving this together in a way that's going to come together climactically in the two sons of the parable of the prodigal son, which really, I mean, isn't ultimately about the prodigal son. It's kind of a misnamed parable. There's two sons. And indeed, in terms of the original focal plane, the rhetoric, who Jesus is speaking to, it's more about the second son, the older, well, the older son, the firstborn son, the second son, his narrative is presented second. So it's this son who's really the focus of that parable. All right, so we're seeing all these things. Then already in 15, we're seeing this setup that there's two groups. Just like there's two sons, there's two groups. One group, one son, as it were, are the tax collect- is the tax collectors and the sinners. And the second son, as it were, is the Pharisees and the scribes. Okay, the Pharisees and the scribes in verse 2 are grumbling. They're complaining. What's their emotional state? Yeah, they're jealous and they're unhappy. Why are they jealous? I mean, it's a great insight. They're jealous because, look, we're the ones doing all the stuff. We're the ones who should be invited. And has Jesus invited them? Has Jesus spoken with them? I mean, in a sense, yeah, he has. Uh, no doubt about it. But what's really, got, what's really got their rancor up? So also has he invited the unworthy. He's put, he's put the Pharisees and the scribes, the experts in the Bible, and those who are bearing the heat of the day, if that sounds familiar, um, those who are really striving, he's put, he, Jesus has put them on the same level as the tax collectors and the sinners, and that's what they can't stand. So their jealousy is one of, hey, we deserve preferential treatment. And that's why they don't have ears to hear what Jesus is saying. The tax collectors and the sinners do have ears to hear because they're like, well, he's receiving us when no one else would, particularly when the scribes and Pharisees won't. 
I don't even count us as brothers. Now, now that's going to tie in climactically in the parable of the two sons. <clears throat> they don't even count us as brothers. And here this man comes and acts as though he's our father. He welcomes us to his table and he feeds us. All right, so already, I just want to put that out there because already it's important to see that what Luke is doing isn't just like, I mean, take for example, why on earth does he make this distinction between the tax collectors and the sinners? Aren't tax collectors sinners? Why doesn't he just say the sinners? And why does he lump these two over and against, as I mentioned earlier, the scribes and the Pharisees when he could pick others to add there too? He's already on this kind of third focal plane, setting us up to meditate deeply. He's got his literary purposes in mind. And all of that's going to, it seems this up front is going to bear fruit down the line because you're going to see literary artistry and you're going to see that the gospels are truly masterpieces. These are, these are genius level men and probably all the more because the Holy Spirit is inspiring them to this level. All right. Okay, the Pharisees are then grumbling. They're unhappy, obviously. They're not joyful. They're not rejoicing. And they're jealous, but jealous in a nuanced way. Their jealousy stems from the fact that tax collectors and sinners are given the same honor that they're given. The same payment at the end of the day to riff on the other parable. Okay, here's what they say. End of verse 2. This man, of course, is Jesus, receives sinners. It's a twofold charge. Receives sinners and eats with them. I, I won't go into the long, like, table fellowship thing, but it just, I mean, we'll basically, as Americans, we'll, be, we'll more or less eat with anyone. It doesn't matter to us. But eating with someone um, in that culture, you're, you're never just eating with someone. You're always sitting at someone's table. And that whoever's table you're sitting at, he's the father. And if he's invited you to sit at that table, um, there's a sense in which you're now his sons. You're now his family. That's kind of what's going on in the background. I may be overstating it a little, but I'm trying to do it fast. So that's more as they see it than not. So this man receives sinners and eats with them. That's their, that's their problem. So on then the first focal plane, Look at verse 3. So he told them. Jesus, on the first focal plane, just the rhetorical, immediate events, Jesus isn't speaking to anyone but those Pharisees and scribes. So these parables, I mean, this is the, this is the fascinating thing. On the primary rhetorical level, he's not saying this to the disciples. He's not saying this to tax collectors and sinners. He's not saying this to the church. He's saying this to these men who have this problem. So that'll color then on this primary level, the way you hear Jesus. Now, because he says what he says and freights his words, then we're going to have this secondary reflection, whereas the church, we do receive them and we receive them on a deeper level. That makes sense. Hopefully so kind of, <laughs> maybe it'll become clear as we go along. All right. So, he told them, namely, the Pharisees and scribes, this parable. What man of you, plural, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? 
The first thing Jesus has done rhetorically is he's put the Pharisees and the scribes in his own shoes. He says, which of you having lost a sheep? That is, imagine yourself as a shepherd. Maybe some of them do have sheep. They do have their own flocks. They can imagine this. But already Jesus invites them up to his level. So I've done this very rarely in my pastorate. The few times I've done it, it's been pretty darn effective. Is if somebody's upset about something going on, you say, well, what would you do? Or let me tell you what this looks like. Now, what would you do? It's pretty darn effective when you call somebody sort of out of their role, out of their niche in the argument and say, you get to be the judge. You get to be the shepherd. And that's effectively what Jesus is doing in terms of rhetoric. He invites them to see themselves as shepherds. Now, of course, secondary, we know that he's the shepherd. All right. And that starts to come through in the rhetoric as well. So what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And for Jesus' rhetoric to work, this all just has to make sense. It has The answer has to be like, obviously, we all would. Otherwise, the rhetoric doesn't make sense. Jesus, is, and probably you've heard this preach, probably I've preached it this way a long time ago, and it's just wrong. Uh, it's, it, first of all, it's for people who are like husbandry challenged. We, we don't know how shepherding works. And so this seems odd to us that you would sort of like risk the 99 in order to go get the one. But that's not the case. Of course, you keep the 99 together, and you go and seek the one. So this is self-evident, obvious, and true. Now, already, he's kind of caught them, and he's kind of stung them, because if you would do this for sheep, what's the inference? I would do this for people. You value your sheep, your animals, more than you value these people. That's the immediate punch and sting of what Jesus is saying. But it's delivered in a friendly way, because again, you're the shepherd here. What would you do? All right. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country? Uh, open country is a remo, is uh, just desert or wilderness, interestingly. And go after the one that is lost. And that that little detail becomes important. This is where Jesus is freighting his words. He doesn't say in the grassy field, in the pasture. There's Greek words for this kind of thing. But he says in the wilderness. Because ultimately, the 99 um, who believe themselves to be righteous are them, and they're in a desert. They're in a wilderness. So that's that's what I mean by the level two of how Jesus chooses and freights his language. So that when you go back and look at it, or as these Pharisees and scribes meditate upon it, it stings a little. They're, they're not in the pasture, they're in the wilderness. Now Jesus has just slipped this in in such a way, I doubt that any of them grasp that on first hearing. But on second or third, or meditating on his words, you do definitely get it. All right, at verse 5, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Now, there's a practical element to that, of course, because a sheep's not like a dog where you can just be like, okay, follow me, friend. It's not going to follow you. And so he's got to put it up on his shoulders. But this is the, but the image becomes freighted, doesn't it? Because you've got this sheep that was lost that he finds that now he's got to bear home. 
That's that's what I mean by Jesus choosing imagery. Why doesn't he just say, hey, he goes and he finds it and he brings it home? Why does he specify and draw out this picture of him laying it on his shoulders? That's what I mean by Jesus freighting the language so that when you return to it, you're going to see it more deeply, more wonderfully. You might even think of the practicalities of that. Shepherds are, I mean, there's kind of a love-hate relationship within Hebrew culture with shepherds. Times they're elevated. Even the title of shepherd is understood to be a kingly title. But other times they're sort of the outcasts and the off-scouring and they've got a dirty, filthy job. David is the shepherd because why? He's out with the flocks because why? He's the youngest. (laughs) He's the lowest in the pecking order. So, yeah, there's this love, hate, shame thing. And one of the things that's illustrated here, I think it's kind of, again, for those of us who are like husbandry challenged, a sheep on your shoulders as you're journeying it back home is not potty trained. It's not clean to begin with. It's not potty trained and things can, things can happen. Okay. So, so this is, I mean, again, the way Jesus has freighted this. We can see the mess. We can see him as the shepherd. We can see him seeking and saving the lost. We can see the dirtiness with which he's going to, you know, he's going to engage in this dirtiness and this job to bring the sheep home. And it's worth it to him. And not only is it worth it to him, but it does what? Fills him with joy. He's rejoicing. When he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders. He doesn't count it a burden. He's not struggling. He's not like, ah, the stupid sheep. Ah, I finally found it. Now I've got it back. He is elated that he found his sheep. He could care less that it was hard work, that it was dirty, that it was nasty, that he's got to bear the sheep's weight. All these things, he is rejoicing. So because the Lord is afraid of these words on this secondary level, we're seeing him bringing us home, aren't we? And we're, we're seeing him as the good shepherd. What is his attitude toward us as our savior? He doesn't begrudge the difficult, dirty job of saving us. What is his attitude? I, and this is kind of one of the astonishing things. I think maybe our vicar this year preached it um, on Good Friday, that when Jesus is, is on the cross, I mean, obviously, he's suffering profoundly, physically, psychologically, and spiritually, spiritually the deepest of all. But if you ask what his deeper posture is, what, what in the depths of his heart is going on, it is joy. It is rejoicing. This is why he came, and he doesn't begrudge us what it costs. And so all of that is uh, freighted here in the imagery and language that he chooses. Does that make sense? So there's kind of the secondary level of the way Jesus tells it invites us to understand things more deeply. You think the Pharisees and the scribes are grasping that at this point? Nope. That's what I mean by level one. They're not grasping that. I mean, maybe it's sort of like tugging at their heartstrings a little, but that's about it. Okay, so he's rejoicing. Verse six, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have, and this would be common. I mean, this this isn't, um, this wouldn't be outside of the ordinary. It may well be, too, that this, that this has taken him a day or more uh, to find this sheep and bring it home. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep 
that was lost. Now, here's probably worthwhile to point something out, that Jesus doesn't just, I mean, he does, so the word lost there is freighted. In the in like a Greek dictionary, lost is like the third definition. The primary definition is to be destroyed or to perish. So this is just yet another example of how um, to go after the one that is lost is to go after the one that is dead or is as good as dead. And he echoes that, for I have found my sheep that was dead, was as good as dead. I've rescued it from death. He uses this language of apollos or apolumi, which is strange. It's not so strange you'd be like, why, is he, why didn't they translate it death? But it's a strange choice of words. And again, that's because Jesus is freighting his language. He's choosing his words. And hopefully then what you'll see too is that Jesus is a master preacher. Nobody preaches better than Jesus. Because he loads it up in such a way that you don't catch it the first time. But as you're reading, hearing, meditating later, you do catch it. And you go, holy smokes. He did that right off the bat. All right, so Apollumi is here for lost. And by, and I bring that up because this is going to recur through all three of these parables. Okay, I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, plural, who's the you? Yeah, it traces back to verse three, the plural you there. And then we know... On account of verses 1 and 2, he's speaking specifically to the Pharisees and the scribes. When he says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. All right? They are grumbling and upset. Jesus is rejoicing and filled with joy. The shepherd rejoices, bringing it back. He gets back home. He calls his friends. There's rejoicing, rejoice with me. And then there is more joy, rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Jesus is saying, I I mean, here's here's the invite. There's a contrast and there's an invite. The contrast is there you are, grumpy, jealous, and grumbling. And here I am, and here we are, joyful and rejoicing. So remember the charge, this man eats and drinks with sinners. This man is a wine bibber. Remember that accusation? Why, what is Jesus saying here? Why do I eat and drink with sinners? Why is the wine flowing when I'm with sinners? Because this is rejoicing. This is their homecoming. This is also the wedding of heaven and earth and the joy of salvation. So Jesus is Again, freighting his words so that we reflect on these things in a secondary way, but in the immediate rhetoric, he's contrasting for them their irritation with his joy, and he's inviting them to participate in that joy, to perceive that joy and participate in. Why? Because again, he's put them in the position of the shepherd. Which of you having a sheep that is lost? Why don't you Pharisees and scribes who see yourselves as leaders and shepherds of men, why don't you rejoice with me that these sheep who are lost are found? And that invitation becomes all the more poignant, doesn't it? Because we know where this goes with the firstborn son and the father coming out and begging him to come in and rejoice. Yeah, please. Yeah. 
two things. God was uh, in Ezekiel. He he really uh, told the shepherds of the flock then. Mm -hmm. What's the right word? You know, uh, told to them. Mm -hmm. He said, "I will send a, a, a new shepherd." I guess that was referred. Well, that no, that that was after David, so that was referred to Christ. Mm -hmm. Because you failed in your job, you need the fact. Right. Yes. And the second question and comment is I've heard it said before, uh, and I guess it's not in the scripture, that the shepherd will often break the legs of the uh, sheep that is gone because it won't come back easily. And that may tie into your Sunday Proverbs, where we'll, we're going to have trials as our Lord brings us into his fold, you know, uh, and suffering and etc. Yeah. I, I mean, I think all those are sort of like fine homiletical points to bring out, and devotional points. Yeah, it doesn't come right out of the text. Um, there's all kinds of inferences and speculations about, you know, how this would have went down, what the nature of it is, who was left with the 99 sheep. I mean, all kinds of stuff that preachers like to throw in. One of, one of my uh, favorite living preachers uh, made this quip. He said, um, he said, I don't like any of those interpretive things unless I'm the one that came up with them. <laughs> that made me laugh out loud in my shower when I was listening. I was like, yep, that's exactly the ego of, of the preacher here. Isn't there a verse that says, we all are like sheep who have gone astray? So does that mean all of us at one point or another have gone astray and our Lord has to come and bring us back? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I, I mean, in a sense, now here, here we would be at the secondary or tertiary sense. So Jesus freighting his words or Luke framing everything. I mean, ultimately, these scribes and Pharisees should see themselves as lost sheep. But it's very important that at least at first in the rhetoric, he's inviting them to see themselves as shepherds. We don't want to lose that. Now, I haven't actually finished it because by the time when he talks about the 99 righteous persons, we're going to see how Jesus starts to throw them into the category of sheep. And he, the one shepherd, a la Ezekiel, which, by the way, comes up in the Old Testament. It's the misericordious domini, the merciful heart of the Lord, the tender hearted Lord, and kind of also like the good shepherd theme, the good shepherd gospel. And then Ezekiel, the bad shepherds who, instead of feeding the sheep, feed themselves with the sheep. <laughs> That's all coming up this Sunday. So, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the who need no repentance. Meaning, yeah, yeah, I haven't even got to that yet, but yeah, you're exactly on. Yeah, you're exactly on track there. So this is great because what is what does repentance here mean? It's the typical metanoia word, but repentance here has a sense um, of conversion. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with homiletically saying uh, you can make an angel rejoice today. By stopping your sin, <laughs> you can make heaven happy today by putting to death this thing you've been doing. I, I think that that's great. But I think in terms of technical exegesis, it would be in the camp of conversion. But even more specific than that, it would be in the camp of restoration. Because what does he have? This sheep is already a part of the flock, but it's been lost from the flock. And now it's being restored to the flock. 
So it's conversion in the sense of restoration. This is Jesus saying, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't they already belong to the flock of God? They do, but they've wandered into tax collecting and sinning. They've been, by those who should shepherd them, they've been neglected. Now the good shepherd has come and he is uh, restoring them to the fold. So right then, Chris, this would be a great point to draw out what you said, that um, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 dikaios, righteous ones, who need no repentance. Now, that is, he flips it here and would have them, previously he's having them see themselves as shepherds. Now he challenges them to see themselves as sheep. They think themselves to be righteous ones. Now, this is exactly analogous to, I came not for those who are well, but for those who are sick. Are there in truth anyone who's well? No, there's just people who think they are well. Are there in truth any righteous ones? No, there are only those who think they are righteous. And so this is his rhetorical punch against their self-perception of being righteous over and against the tax collectors and sinners. Yeah, I'm sure. Sure. It's within sort of that semantic sphere. Yeah, it is fun. Jesus uses all kinds of uh, uh, snark and sarcasm. And so does St. Paul. I mean, it's great. It's great fun. There's nothing off the table. And he may have even said it. I mean, who knows? You don't want to, you don't want to start reading tonality in necessarily, but he may have, he may have even said it with a little bit of snark, with a little bit of sarcasm or irony in his voice. Um, that aside, the words themselves stand in just that way, that there are no such thing as 99 righteous ones who need no repentance. And I think that that need no repentance would have stung them too, because they think they need repentance. I mean, there's not a Pharisee out there. And this is, again, sometimes where we've just overly simplified. There's no such thing as a scribe or a Pharisee who goes, I don't need to repent. Every last one of them goes, I need to repent. Just not as much as those people. (laughs) That's what makes a Pharisee a Pharisee and a scribe a scribe. It's not that they really think they're perfectly righteous before God. That's silly. They know that they need God's mercy. They just need less mercy than that, those poor saps over there. Yeah, they're always comparing. So this is this point isn't drawn out yet here. I mean, it's hinted at to be sure, but it's explicit in the parable of the two sons. We're going to see how Jesus is so surgical with his language as to draw this out that kind of secondary level where Jesus is so masterfully choosing his words and choosing his frames. It's just, I mean, it's just brilliance in a bottle. It's fantastic. We'll see that in a minute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How would you apply this parable in our context? In other words, I, I, I totally see that he's talking to the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. In today's world, how would, how would that parable be applied or taught in our context. Yeah, I mean, here's where preachers argue all the time. 
You're hoping that when you're preaching to your people, they're Christians, not Pharisees and scribes who are not Christians. Um, I, I think though, uh, so, so in one sense, then you can see how this argument would like, do you put, do you put the Christian congregation in the place where Jesus puts the scribes and the Pharisees? Like, Hey, which of you, you know, which, which of you seeing, uh, seeing your brand new freshly washed car and a seagull flies over and does his business right on the windshield. Which of you won't go and wash that off? Then that's the ministry of the church is not dealing with perfect people or people who should have everything together, but we're constantly wiping bird crap off windshields constantly and continually. So if you expect the church to be a place filled with saints and perfect people, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Not only are you going to be sorely disappointed, but you're going to be hypocritical in your disappointment because you go immediately and clean your car or your lawn or your throw your shirt in the wash when it gets stained with taco juice. You care for these things and you're patient and you just go do it. But we get impatient when we're dealing with souls and people. That might be an application, right? Um, and then secondarily, of course, is Jesus ultimately and masterfully sort of throws them into the role of sheep and himself as the ultimate shepherd. Then there's kind of a fun twist we can have there too. Like, which sheep out there hasn't been lost, you know? And there, there's Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. Beautiful refrain in Handel's Messiah. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's, if that was a standalone, maybe those would be the first kinds of themes that come to mind. Mm-hmm. False teachers. false teachers. In what in what sense would you, are you thinking about that? Uh, the Pharisees being false teachers being in the in the place there, and the Pharisees mm-hmm. do damage to their sheep as opposed to save their sheep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. I mean, I think I think important to keep in view is the particular kind of false teaching here. We're not just dealing with somebody who denies the divinity of Christ or something like that, right? But the specific kind of false teaching here is that this man receives sinners and eats with them. The people gathered around Jesus are not holy people. That's a problem. I hear a, hear a great application would be, you know, isn't it Gandhi's little statement that gets like, I, I like your Christ, just not uh, your Christians, or something like whatever he said, you know, like, I don't mind Christ. I just can't stand the people who claim to be Christians. Well, that, I mean, that sounds maybe like it's got some wisdom. It's the height of foolishness. I mean, Jesus would see that as identical to the sentiment of the scribes and the Pharisees. What do you mean you don't love my sheep? When they're lost, I go out there and and I don't chastise them. I, I put them on my shoulders. I don't berate them on the way home. I'm rejoicing. I'm whistling and singing and giving thanks to God as I carry this sheep, even if, if the sheep happens to lose its bladder down my back. I'm not going to let that get me down. I am going to rejoice that I went out to find the sheep, no matter the cost, I found it and I'm bringing it home. And then I'm going, and my joy is so overflowing that I'm going to share it with my friends and neighbors and invite them over to a party. And we're all going to party. And then Jesus says also, then the angels in heaven, like heaven's joining in the party. I any of us have ever lost a little one at a, at a shopping <laughs> we, we want to come home and have that party because we're overjoyed, you know. Absolutely. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, I think it's really important to draw out. I mean, it just can't be overstated because Jesus has this threefold rejoicing. For Jesus, the joy and the rejoicing is, I, I mean, maybe even the major point is he's looking at these sourpusses who can't stand that he's having equal mercy upon them and giving them equal privileges. He is these terrible sinners and tax collectors. Um, just this bitterness, this grumpiness. And he's just, I mean, in a sense, he's got no time for it. And he's trying to show them how ridiculous it is. But even then, it's to bring them in. It's to bring them in as sheep and as shepherds so that their joy may be full. I, I mean, in John's gospel, that's explicit. Jesus doesn't send his disciples out to preach the gospel because there's some sort of like divine necessity or because there's some sort of like, like, oh, I don't know, they might not be saved otherwise. We should all wring our hands about this and maybe develop some programs of how to reach the, no, just go and do it that your joy may be full. As the Father sent me, I am sending you, which means in the fullness of joy. And that's really how the Christian message should be shared. It should be shared not out of like fear or compulsion or, you know, gosh, I didn't tell this person. And so now I, you know, I'm in danger of hellfire because I didn't warn them of hellfire and this kind of thing. And it's more specific to the pastoral office, more specific to the office of prophet in Ezekiel. Is for in terms of in terms of Christians, though, it's just and in terms of the New Testament apostles, yeah, less so the pastoral office now, as I even think about it, than the prophetic office, is this idea that the fullness of Christ's joy overflows to us. We simply share the goodness of the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of God. That we be so filled with that joy, our cup overflows with joy unto others. And so, I mean, the same way you're like really excited about something, you talk about it all the time. That's the kind of joy that Christ would have, all of us have, and share just this bubbling out of natural joy. I think we do this when we say, like, it's not an, an insane text. It's like the greatest thing ever. Isn't that a beautiful proverb? It's the most wonderful thing ever. Isn't the, isn't the uh, epistle to the, or, or yeah, I mean, the epistle to the Hebrews, like the richest thing you've ever seen in terms of interpreting the Old Testament? It's wild. So when we talk about the things we love, that's the joy overflowing unto others. That's really what I think Christian witness is. Yeah. Okay, should we go on to the uh, lost coin? Okay, so the context doesn't change at all. We're going to see the same kind of threefold thing here. Or what woman having 10 silver coins... If she loses, now it's the same thing, like destroyed, perished, lost. One coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek dilate. So cost, she's burning oil. Uh, sweep the house, she's working. And she's methodic and meticulous in seeking diligently. So when you've lost a coin and you're sleep, okay, we don't, yeah, we live in electricity. So you just, yeah, so you just flip on the lights or you get out a flashlight. When you're in a, when you're in a place like you light a lamp, it's still dim and flickering. So you have to get a broom and you start in one corner of the house and you go through the whole darn house. I mean, maybe it's not that big, but that's what you do. That's your methodology. So she's sweeping and seeking diligently. She's going to cover it all until she finds it. 
So again, I mean, not as explicitly as before, but he's putting her, like he's putting them in the place of the woman sweeping and ultimately it'll be himself. Ultimately it'll be his church, but those are like secondary and tertiary reflections primarily. I mean, and, and again, here's where it's just, sometimes we get, we pastors myself to blame, are to blame. We just get too excited. I mean, at a very basic level, he's saying, isn't this what, what a woman does if she loses a coin? Of course it is. Well, then what do you think I'm doing? I mean, that's really the rhetorical punch. It's no more compl- complicated at that first level than, than that. When somebody loses a coin, they spare, they take their time to find it. And I've lost something infinitely more precious to me than a coin. And so I'm going to take my time and I'm going to find it. All right, nine. And then when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors. So a drachma, uh, that's the silver coin, is uh, like a day's wage, basically. So it's a substantial amount. I mean, again, we're so much more wealthy and affluent. We just don't even think in these terms. But and it's kind of alien to us that somebody would get excited about this. But, I mean, this is a, a substantial amount of money if you're poor, as most people were. And so, uh, so yeah, that's the rejoicing. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. I mean, none of this is sarcastic. This is what they would have done. Jesus rhetoric doesn't work if this is some sort of like sarcastic, weird thing um, that's unusual because they just be like, no, that's not what any normal person does. And then that really like uh, refutes his whole rhetoric because then, well, why are you doing this? So it has to make intuitive sense to them that this is just what people do. And the inference then is, why do you begrudge me when I'm doing this? Okay, so she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Now, loses and lost are, again, the destroy, perish, loss. So he's freighted the language once again there, just as he will in the next parable. Just so I tell you, there is joy. And we're back to the theme of joy. So uh, twofold here. She calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. And then there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So all of the joy is being amplified again by Jesus over and against the Pharisees and scribes who are grumbling and upset. She rejoices with the family that she has found the coin that she had lost. And then he fleshes out, it's, it's exactly, 10 is exactly parallel to 7. Joy in heaven in 7 is now uh, parallel with joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And we've got that same theme of conversion or restoration. Um, so the coin was hers, it was lost, now it's been restored to her. So restoration is, um, but conversion is in view here. So the angels of God are rejoicing over one sinner who is restored, who repents. Now, the repenting here, and and again, this is sort of like, I don't know, this is really kind of way out there. But when we look at the repenting in the case of the sheep and in the case of the coin, it's worth noting that the coin doesn't do anything to be found. And the sheep probably does the opposite of doing something to be found. <laughs> so, I, so I'm not opposed at all when people want to point that out and say, look at the repenting. Um, there's a passive component the way Jesus freights and colors this. 
the coin is passive in being found. The sheep is an antithesis to being found. It's working against it be, itself being found. And so there is a sense in which God then grants repentance, and that's borne out in the way that Jesus colors these first two parables. Now that becomes, he clarifies that, I believe, in the next parable, because the man's repentance does indeed have an active component. So lest you think that you just sort of sit around and wait for God to repent you or something like this, I can't, frankly can't stand that language because it's like tr- it's trying to outdo the Holy Spirit. Um, you'll see then in the two lost boys that the boy, when he comes to repentance, he comes to himself. And he has this internal conversation with himself and he puts his own two feet on the path to get back to his father's house. So there is an active component of repentance that we shouldn't be afraid of. And that's, um, that's fleshed out by Jesus in the next parable. If Jesus wanted to do otherwise, he'd have what? The father go out into the foreign land and find his son and carry him home. But that's not there. And Jesus has a very specific point with that. Just because I've told you that it's passive and because repentance is God's gift to you and repentance is about his finding you, there's also this other side of the coin where you come to yourself and you realize where you're at and you get on the path back to God. And then what will you find is not a God who says, all right, I'll be inside. You know, the father doesn't see his son on the horizon and go, ah, that rascal, and go back inside. You know, the father runs and embraces him. So, okay, so that's that's really helpful for us to reflect on, too, is the way that Jesus describes repentance um, in these three different parables. We get three different flavors in the sheep who is actively contrary, in the coin that is passive, and in the son who is active. You see all three different kinds of repentance there? contrary to or concupiscent against, passive in the coin, and then active in the boy. Mas- just masterful. I mean, just masterful. Unbelievable. Okay, did we do it? There's no, uh, there's no 10 coins here, you know, analogous to the 99 sheep. So Jesus has kind of made his point. And probably with the sheep, you know, the lost sheep and the flock and he, the good shepherd. And it's just not so evident here Uh, in the history of the church. Many want to take this woman as um, the church. And I've got no problem with that. The church sweeping and finding. Um, But what would that be? That would probably be, I mean, you could see Jesus maybe freighting that with his choice of the woman. And then certainly uh, sort of the third level reflections of Luke and the church um, where the church is conceived of as the bride of Christ and the woman um, who joins with Christ, the bridegroom, in his activity of seeking and saving the lost. So we're kind of out there on that third level. Okay, so far so good? We've got three minutes left, and we've got the next parable, which is probably going to take <laughs> take us a little more than three minutes. Um Oh, question. The yeah. friends and neighbors in these two parables. Yeah. Is that an analogous to either the church on earth or the angels in heaven? Or is it both or either or? Yeah, I think it's all above. I think it's all above. Um, I think that this gets fleshed out more 
in the multi. So when Jesus does the um, parable of the two lost boys, you've got um, you've got a diversity in the cast that's spelled out there a little. Whereas here you just have like, is it is it what is it? Friends and neighbors. Um, you get hired servants, slaves, a boy, and sons. Now, I don't think that Jesus is doing anything terribly systematic or technical here. But what I but what I really think he's done is he's freighted his story in such a way that when we come back here with Luke at this third level, we're seeing the whole household of God on earth. And we're seeing that the household on of God on earth is joined with the household of God in heaven. With, the, with all of heaven rejoicing, with the angels rejoicing, so that the whole household of God on earth and in heaven is engaged in the great celebration of the Son finding that which was lost and restoring it unto God. So I think that that's the point there, is that on ultimate reflection, we see this as a communal house event. And I mean, you'll notice that that's drawn out. This is what I mean by Jesus freighting this. Um he says house, I think. Let me see where he does. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just not as clear in the English. In verse 6, he says home and comes home, comes to the house. And then the woman is at her house. And then the when um, it's all centered on the house, when the, when the older son comes, he comes to the house and sees this. So it's this household event in which all have been brought in to rejoice. So it's a really subtle thing, but it's just there. It's one of those, it's again, another element of our Lord's genius way of telling stories that he's got all these interwoven components. I mean, in a way, it's just as somebody who preaches for a living, it's almost impossible to do this. Very difficult to interweave those themes and to do so as succinctly and brilliantly as Jesus is just impossible. I mean, you have to stand in awe of him as a theologian. As a preacher, just incredible. Okay, well, so maybe we'll pause there. Maybe next week we'll jump into the prodigal son. And because I do want to do a deep dive, and I do have, I mean, as is my way, I've got some bones to pick with how uh, the church handles uh, this parable in particular, because I think um, we've, we've allowed our theological experience to color it in some unfair ways. So... Shall we close with the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you guys online for joining. Appreciate it. Look thank forward. you. Wait. Well, Luke is the most comprehensive in terms of the parables, but Luke is the most comprehensive, period. So it just is fitting, I think. Um, I don't mean to in any way infer that Luke has less depth. I don't think that's fair. But Luke isn't playing 
with nearly the the sort of in-house scriptural themes that Matthew is playing with. And uh, John is just a wild man. I mean, for my money, John's off the charts because John is is doing everything that Matthew is doing in terms of like in-house, do you know the scriptures or not? The more you know, and here I mean the Old Testament, the more you know the Old Testament, the more you're going to understand John. But then John's just off the charts in terms of, um, I think maybe the best way to describe it would be uh, like grammatical iconography. Okay, so he's using words to set before you a picture. And that picture is going to interweave with other pictures in ways that are almost almost nonverbal. So he's dealing with themes that are, this is why John is enigmatic. That's why everybody says John's enigmatic. It's one of the ironies. We give people the gospel of John because for God so loved the world, but that's like about the only easy part of John. (laughs) <laughs> and even then, that might not be as easy as we think it is. Uh, John is John is far and away, um, like the I, I would argue, the deepest of the gospel expressions. And especially when you tie that in with First John and Revelation, it's just wow! It's like the ocean. I mean, the only the only person who's deeper than John is uh, is um, Jesus. And relative to John's depth, Paul just isn't that deep. I, I mean, Paul's profound. Um, Paul cuts to the heart. We like Paul because it fits with our categorical ways of thinking, but there's just not quite the depth um, in Paul that somebody like John has. He's writing to the Greek audience. So I don't know if he goes, hey, the parables just sort of like Socrates and Plato, like, you know, sort of like you guys can understand this, like, hey, smart guy says, you know, outlets, these other, I don't know if there's a little bit of that in part of that. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, it is. And that's the difficulty with knowing for certain. But I I mean, I'm all ears when people see that, like, yeah, when people want to infer that Jesus is doing, or that, sorry, that Luke is putting Jesus, like, sort of before them via symposium, like, sort of the way of the the Greek philosophers. And there's something to be said there. I mean, I'm all ears. And there's something to be said, too. I don't, I just can't present it in a convincing way. I don't know it well enough, but um, there's something to be said for Luke's passion account as being one of triumph and heroism in the strict sense. So, I mean, I think that, I think that where that comes from is when you look at Matthew and Luke and John on their own terms, that's the best case to make for Luke presenting Christ on the cross as a, like, be uh, a be a Greek hero, or to some degree, a more westernly, like Western mind, sympathetic. Uh, we would be sympathetic to his heroism. I mean, Mark, it's just bleak and it's scary. And I mean, Mark is like Mark is like your to- the whole of Mark is like you're tossed into the ocean in a storm. Uh, the shorter ending of Mark is they run away from the tomb in fear. <laughs> It's great. And then probably someone's like, Mark, you can't end it that way. And so later on, he's like, okay, fine. I mean, that's my theory for the longer ending of Mark. Uh, and then and then Matthew is just reading Jesus through the scriptures. That's his MO the whole way through. He's just, this happened because it said so in the Old Testament. That's, I mean, that 
I'm oversimplifying, but that's Matthew's frame. John's got a bunch of that, but John's doing other stuff too. Yeah. I know I'm with you. I think, I mean, there's a, there's an easy case to make that Mark is the most straightforward and everything's immediately and everything's boom, boom, boom. Um, the deeper themes in Mark are the chaos themes. So when you, and here it's actually best to just read Mark fast, just sit down and read as much as you just don't try to understand. Don't try to get like, see the forest, not the trees. Um, And then what you see Mark is all these themes of danger and darkness and chaos. And Jesus is, is ambiguously and um, enigmatically in the middle of it all and all alone. The disciples are getting tossed all over. Their boats getting tossed all over. The demons are wild and doing their thing. Um, sickness and uh, the curse are just like all these elements of chaos. And it's just boom, boom, boom. It's like Jesus in the middle of a storm. And Mark's emphasis is just that he's all alone. And you don't know whether, I mean, I think that this is the beauty of Mark, probably if I had to summarize it. All the way through Mark, you don't know what to be more scared of. All of these, all of the powers of darkness and chaos in the world against Jesus or Jesus, you don't know which to be more scared of, which I think is the triumphant ending. I think this is why Mark, where Mark's genius is, he, when they find the empty tomb, they don't see the risen Jesus. They find the empty tomb and they run off into the darkness terrified because the punchline of Mark is who do, like, so you remember this line out of the scriptures? I mean, it's a little cheap for me to do, but um, with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I really think in a sense that that's what Mark's playing with is they're t- when Jesus rescues them in the boat, they're terrified of Jesus. They were immediately terrified of the wind and waves. I mean, terrified unto death. And Jesus is like, zip it. And they're like, what are we dealing with? <laughs> right his mercy his forgiveness is more terrifying when you think about it because it's a greater power than sin and death and hell and when you meditate that and you take that in it's like astonishing and shocking and you like flee away from him into the night in horror and in and in fear before you wrap your mind around like well i think i want to be on his side <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah. So anyway, those are my thoughts on Mark. But yeah, I agree with you that he, that's probably the simplest one to put before people. It's just not the easy one to understand in terms of like, it's not happy. It's not like, it's not, yeah. Yeah. It's unresolved. Yeah. Yeah. 